Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. David Gura, Tom Keen here in New York. Uh, going to have a conversation now with Kevin Hassett, the chairman of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. He's been wading into this hot subject of tax reform here recently. Went into the lion's den last week, delivered a major speech at the Tax Policy Center, at an event convened by the Tax Policy Center and the Tax uh, Foundation. I think the most provocative lines in that speech might have been, uh, I look forward to your questions. After some criticism of the uh, analysis the Tax Policy Center did of the proposal put forward by the Big Six a couple of weeks ago now. Kevin Hassett, great to have you with us here on our phone lines. You uh, you were intending to make a speech about tax reform. You were critical of the way the Tax Policy Center went about its analysis. What prompted you to do that? What struck you as, as most wrong about what they did? I think the most uh, wrong thing about the Tax Policy Center study was just that they not only didn't allow for any growth effects of tax reform, but they said at the beginning of their study that if they did allow for growth effects, they expect that they would find none. And that's just inconsistent with a massive amount of scientific literature. I mean, honestly, if we cut the corporate tax rate from 35 to 20 percent and have a big tax cut across the board on the individual side, I mean, that's going to affect the economy. It's going to affect the economy maybe a lot if people, you know, for the optimists and maybe not so much for the pessimists, but I don't think there's really anybody that's ever modeled it. This has no effect except the tax policy center. And they put this analysis out, you know, pretty early in the process, clearly in a political attempt to um, stop the process before it even gets going. In fairness to them, they were trying to analyze something that it's still, I think you can agree, is, is rather thin. We're waiting for Congress to apply some meat to the bones of this tax reform proposal. Uh, are, 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 you, are, you, are, are you convinced that we're going to get there, that we're going to get to a full-fledged tax reform proposal here over these next few months in light of the fact that we only have nine pages at this point? Yeah, you know, honestly, if you think about a setup for having a great bipartisan tax reform, there's never been a better one. When has there ever been a Republican president who said, look, on the individual side, I'm looking for a revenue-neutral reform, um, I want these rates, but you get to set the brackets, and oh, by the way, if in order to be fiscally responsible or satisfy your uh, equity concerns, you need a higher top rate, then you can think about that, too. I mean, if that's like an open invitation to collegial bipartisan tax reform. And I think that that offer was just not taken seriously by the Tax Policy Center. You know, they didn't mm-hmm. allow for where the brackets might be. They just used an old report yeah. uh, from the House for putting the brackets there. And they didn't allow for a higher top rate either. And now, folks, we announced that Kevin Hassett is on the same page as Larry Sanders. Yeah. This has happened once in uh, the history of all <laughs> of economics. Both of you rave about one of our great losses of the 20th century, Arthur Oaken. And it's classic equality and inefficiency. And to Larry Summers' wonderful forward to this must-read book is the idea the rules have changed. It's now a much more different and open economy than when that classic was written. Can you guarantee us growth off of tax reform given the new American economy, the new use of technology, the new use of crushing labor and labor share? You know, th- thank you for mentioning Art Oaken, who, uh, you know, I'm humbled to be sitting in the job he once held. And, and he also, uh, Tom, tragically died at the age of 51. Yes. Can you imagine all he would have done if he had just lived a, a longer life? But, yeah, I think Art Oaken is right that if we have high taxes in order to redistribute, then that undermines growth. And that's uh, what the leaky bucket analogy is that he talks so much about, that if we try to 
you know, carry water from a rich guy to a poor guy, then we're going to drop. Yeah, but 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 the rap. And I think that's true. And and, and so and so, if you think that the tax cut won't affect growth, Tom, then what you're basically saying is the bucket don't leak. But Kevin, the the, the basic idea is Oaken's bucket is different now. It's made of titanium, fancy aluminum that Elon Musk figured out at Tesla (laughs) or whatever. In the benefits of the leaks in the modern bucket, only go to people uh, paying alternative minimum tax and living in six thousand square feet in some fancy abode. That's the wrap, right? Well, it's it's incorrect, right? I mean, so so in an open economy, the leaks are worse, not better, because now if we you know try to raise the tax rate, it used to be well, you know, what's the rich guy going to do? He's stuck here in the U.S., but now he can move his income, you know, to the Caymans or to Ireland or to whatever. And so in the big wide open economy, the leaks are worse, not better. That's the problem I have with what you just said. His secretary Mnuchin and the others that are being criticized, do they need to skew tax reform and negotiation towards the middle class? I think that the process that the big six set up is one where the Senate and the House members are now encouraged to set the parameters in a way that they think balances equity and efficiency mm-hmm. in an acceptable way that can get a majority of votes. And, you know, we 100 percent support that process. That's the right way to do bipartisan mm-hmm. tax reform. That's the way we've done it for years in the past. Kevin, for, for those of us who hear the terms uh, Council of Economic Advisors, National Economic Council, what role are you playing in, in all of this? Help us understand the, the lane that the, uh, the, the CEA is in right now. Oh, thanks. Yeah, well, uh, the 46 Act established the Council of Economic Advisors as a group of economists that sit in the White House and offer objective advice to the president. And, you know, there are about 35 or 36 people from all over the country, many professors on leave from universities and so on. And, you know, we're right here in the EEOB, right across the street from the White House. uh, And our job is to provide objective analysis of all the economic decisions that the president's making. And that's what we do. So do you have to send a Euclidean ISLM model <laughs> through General Kelly? Like if you work something out on a co- – Kevin, if you work something out on a cocktail napkin at the Trump <laughs> Hotel, do you have to send that through General Kelly to get to the president? Okay, so, Tom, you asked a kind of funny question, but I'm going to give you, like, a, a completely accurate answer, not about General <laughs> Kelly. But, but, but for the CEA to publish a document that we have to go through something that's, that's approved, requires approval from, like, the whole White House process, the staff secretary and so on, that, so that other people who have an interest in it can review the papers. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're already seeing that when our papers go through with equations and things like that, that everybody's kind of giving us funny looks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're the only ones with math at our thing. So what is it to, to speak to – If I may speak with great respect for the wonderful economics profession, including uh, the extinguished Richard Thaler out at Chicago, how will you? Congratulations to him. Yes, Kevin. With all seriousness, how will you, as the Penn PhD, how will you push against the tone against academic economics at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? You know, I don't think there's anything for me to push against. I, I, if you look oh, at the on. president, oh come on, the president's object. Look at the president's tax plan, Tom. I've been on your show how many hundreds of times over the years, and, and it's exactly honestly. If, if you were to you know sit up at night and think of a tax plan that would please you know, the other has that you knew five years ago or something <clears> like that, it would be exactly this. And then, so on the substantive matters that I work on every day, you know, I'm completely in, in you know a sweet right. spot right now. Do you model? And I don't want to get out front of your published models. I understand that pressure. But can you model sustained 3% GDP? 
it depends on the meaning of sustained. <laughs> that that yeah. certainly, if you, you know, I'm a solo modeler in the long run. That I think that things like population growth determine really, really long run growth. But to get average growth of three percent over the next ten years, you know, that depends on the big tax reform. Um, and for sure, you can do that as well. But but you're right, Tom. I mean, you know these models that that, that in the end, you know, if you don't have population go growth through Fair. technological change, Fair. you know, then then there's a limit to to how far yeah. the economy yeah. can grow over like 20, 30, 40 year periods. David, save me. <laughs> we'll come back here in just a minute. But you know, in the, in the minute we have left before we go to break here, Kevin, let me ask you just about the difficulty that you face modeling this tax reform proposal. We've talked about the challenges facing the tax policy center, say, but, but when you look at what's still undetermined or still uh, inchoate about this, this plan, what's the biggest variable yet? Oh, I think that, that on the individual side, the biggest unknowns are still exactly where the um, the, the you know, politicians on the Hill are going to decide they need to set the, put the brackets. And, uh, of course, whether they need a higher top rate, those would be the two on the individual side. And I think yeah. that on the corporate side, yeah. it'll be, you know, what the international tax rules look like, too. Those are uh, still yeah. being negotiated as well. Kevin Hassett with it. He is the with us. He is the chairman of the President's Council of Economic Ad, Ad, Advisors. People have been fascinated to see how he would try to drive the economic conversation forward. Kevin, we spoke with Jim Jordan. Uh, a congressman from the 4th District of Ohio, strong supporter of uh, President Trump, et cetera, et cetera. And we did note the little Switzerland-ish of Ohio in that out in the areas, the territories of Trumpism, there are a building businesses. How can we incentivize investment in small and mid-sized businesses that are below the big cap radar? Oh, yeah. And that's exactly the thing that we're focused on here at the White House, because if you look back at even, you know, like the 19... late 1990s trade literature, we started to see that uh, as the U.S. opened up to trade, that a heck of a lot of factories in places like Ohio and Pennsylvania and Michigan started to close. And then those communities started to have extreme distress and, and repeated problems with high unemployment rates and even things yeah. like substance abuse and divorce. And, 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 you know, these are the people that are crying out for help that nobody's been listening to. And, you know, we've designed a plan that is hopefully going to put a lot of activity back there because right now, if you want to avoid the high U.S. tax, you just put the factory in any well, other country and transfer price the profits over there, and then you do. And, and so what we're trying to do is reward people who create jobs in places like Ohio and Michigan. Okay, well, go surgical, go surgical off of, what was it, nine pages, David, or something, on the Big Six report. Can you do in, an in L- your font, it was a few more can, pages. Than can that, you, yeah, can you do an LBJ-like... <laughs> policy prescription of investment tax credit to jumpstart, you know, so it doesn't help Apple computer do this, this, and this, but so it jumpstarts manufacturers to create a Switzerland of manufacturing in America. Can we do that? You know, we can definitely make uh, America great again. We can make manufacturing. That's original. Copy that down, please. <laughs> Get that phrase. Be sure we quote asset on that. It's amazing. Uh, so, so, but we can do that. But I don't think that we have to micromanage, you know, going here versus going there, because the fact is that once factories start going up here instead of Ireland, then the people who are planning the location of the factory are going to want to go where there are workers. And, you know, the good news is that, uh, you know, people are pretty mobile when they're moving a whole 
Apple factory, and they're going to locate in places where there are a lot of available workers. Right now, for example, in Colorado, there's about half an unemployed person per job listing. You know, but there are other states where there are a lot of unemployed people per job listing. And so if you're trying to build a new factory, you know, which place are you going to go? You're going to go to the place where there are workers, especially places like Ohio. Uh, Kevin, I want to go back to, to your time in Philadelphia. You, you alluded to uh, being in Alan Auerbach's class uh, at Penn when the 1986 oh, yeah, sure. tax reform was passed. This was a part of your, your speech. And I wonder if you could touch upon that a little bit more, how that moment was formative as you began to think about what tax reform might look like in its next iteration. Yeah, so when the 86 Tax Act was happening, then there were all these changes to uh, the corporate side, and um, I started studying, you know, what, well, what do we expect these changes are going to do, and I found that the whole literature said that taxes never have an effect on the economy, and it was kind of puzzling to me because I couldn't quite understand why it would be. In fact, I'll even say the thought that came in my head, which is that if you have individuals that behave irrationally, then there's not really anything that drives them out of the market, but if you have firms that behave irrationally, rationally, they don't respond to things like taxes, well, then smart firms should come and drive them out of the market. And so if we've, you know, got a market where there are firms that don't respond rationally to economic incentives, then there's something really, you know, malfunctioning about it in the economy. And so so that made me kind of dig deeper. And, and Alan and I wrote a paper long, long ago looking at the 86 Act, and we found really big effects of uh, tax policy on business fixed investment uh, once we accounted for some problems, econometric problems that the previous literature had. You said that bipartisanship has been good for tax reform, and tax reform, as we shall see, has been good for America. From your perch there in the old executive office building, are you optimistic we're going to see more bipartisanship here? I look back at the speech and all that led to it in the speech itself, and there's still a lot of partisanship just in this realm in, in, in particular. Are, are, there, are there silver linings that you see that you think that there will be some bipartisan effort on tax reform? I think that the substance of what the president's trying to do uh, deserves bipartisan support. It really does. It's the kind of thing that uh, people on the right and the left have been arguing we should do forever. Again, even putting the top marginal rate on the table. Uh, Larry Kotlikoff, uh, who's an economics professor yeah. at BU, wrote, wrote a piece at Forbes uh, a few weeks ago where he said, look, you know, red, ste- red people, blue people, and purple people have all been supporting things like this forever. You know, it really deserves by yeah, support, and he's right. But come on, the, the analysis by a wide set of people is the gains go to the upper X percent. Granted, they pay the huge share of taxes. You mentioned earlier, uh, Dr. Hassett, the idea that this would be negotiated out in Congress. What do you, if you were sitting with a president on the couch today, hopefully not with your legs up on the couch, but if you were sitting with a president in the Oval Office today, what would you say to make the big six reform more amenable to the red, blue, and purple middle class? Well, look, the, uh, first of all, the, the big six reform is exactly where it's intended to be right now. The, what's happened is that we've agreed on parameters that have been handed up to the Hill for them to work out amongst themselves the Art Oaken debate, like how much do you uh, yeah, think fair. that we should trade off efficiency and equity, and that we're extremely respectful of that process. We understand that we're not going to change the tax code if they can't pass something through the House and through the Senate. And so they've got all the parameters that they need, and, uh, you know, so... That's okay, but come on. Today, I saw a working number. Kevin, Kevin, I saw $1.4 trillion, da, 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 da. I saw $3.1 trillion <laughs> number the other day. What does this do to the deficit? Old, Remember you worked at AEI ages ago? What does this do to the deficit? Well, the... Uh 
budget reconciliation rule will allow for a static score of about one and a half trillion. I think that's what we all expect. It's been covered in the press. Yes. And that and that that is small enough, you know, in this massive economy over 10 years, you know, it's just 150 billion a year, that you don't need really big dynamic effects for the dynamic score of that to be revenue neutral. And that's the objective. Uh, Kevin, we've had some good fun. We've had some good fun talking with Alan Kruger and good morning to uh, everyone listening in Mercer County, New Jersey. But uh, he talked a lot about how he in that position as chair of the Council of Economic Advisors was able to shape the economic focus of that group of economists you mentioned, those 30-plus economists. Mm -hmm. We've been talking about tax reform. What else do you want to tackle uh, during your tenure as the, the chair of the CEA? You know, I think that the job of the CEA is to provide objective analysis for everything that's going on in the White House. And, you know, since I've been here, you know, there have been so many topics that have come up that have been really important, yeah. like thinking about how we recover from hurricanes and so on, that, that a lot of it is, is responding to the needs of America that, that come up today. I think that the long-run objective right now is to take this tax reform thing and, and analyze uh -huh. it and convince people that it's going to have a big positive effect and help it become law. And then I think if uh -huh. we accomplish that... Honestly, it changed, it so fundamentally alters the expected growth path of the economy that it's just like a different mm -hmm. path to go down than if this doesn't path. Do you path. play golf? <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I used to play golf a lot, but you know, when my oldest son uh, was bored, I, I uh, stopped playing golf and started coaching Little League. <laughs> okay, here's your here's your swave tip for the day. The Pick up the irons. Let's go. Get back out there on the course. <laughs> that way, you can get some face time with his worship. Do, this, do you play golf with a bow tie? I do. Yeah, <laughs> actually, I used to caddy with a bow tie, which was sometimes required. That was a few years ago. Anyways, oh. Kevin Hassett, thank you so much. Congratulations on your uh, being anointed as chairman of the President's Council of Economic Generous Advisors. time this morning as well. Certainly an historic uh, time for economics uh, within, this, within the Capitol, David, and uh, this dialogue is, is the witness the President's tweets this morning is unique. Yeah, I'll go back to what you said, which is we've talked to a lot of uh, academic economists, economists who've been uh, in Washington before, and as you said, many were very yeah. excited to have uh, Kevin has it confirmed for that position. They were excited to see the name floated and nominated yeah. and confirmed. So good to have him there uh, on the ground and get that office up and running they, once they, again. Yeah, they, and they've been over the years. They've, they've been uniformly of a great quality, a different quality along the way. The chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. It's like a think tank. I remember uh, Alan Kruger saying that within the White yeah. House. So Kevin's got to learn to play golf. Again. <laughs> What a joy yesterday and a major shout out to the surveillance team. We don't hear in advance who will win the Nobel Prize. And as a religion, we don't try to guess who it will be. It's considered tacky in the economic business to try to game who it will be. But clearly there was a joy when Richard Thaler of the Booth School of Chicago was selected uh, for his work in behavioral science. And we had a great team of people yesterday lined up including Robert Schiller of Yale University, Mr. Krosner, Governor Krosner of the Booth School. And now, the first name I mentioned yesterday, after Robert Schiller, the laureate, I said, and get that Zingales guy uh, from Italy and Chicago who may have a little bit of knowledge uh, here. Luigi Zingales of the Booth School, Chicago. Luigi, what a set of photographs yesterday uh, at Chicago as Mr. Thaler spoke to the assembled faculty. What was it like to be in that room? 
Oh, it was very exciting. I think that uh, the Winter Garden Room is, is great, and it becomes a big amphitheater. It was uh, really a standing ovation for, for Dick. You learn models in economics. Richard Thaler looked at the constraint line and the utility curve, and he said the simplicity of math at a tangent point is way too simplistic. How much is Mr. Thaler and Mr. Schiller, how much have they influenced more rigorous model building? I think that they really have changed a big uh, chunk of economics. Uh, first of all, it's impossible today to think about economics without behavioral economics. is is an important part of the field. But also, no more rational, if you want, uh, uh, scholars uh, have to deal with this paradigm. And many of them have accepted at least some part of it. There was a moment uh, in that press conference yesterday in the Winter Garden, uh, as you mentioned, uh, in which <laughs> Dick Thaler was talking about um, the, the, the way that he's been able to convince or not convince colleagues of his age or older that behavioral economics is important. And he said, I've used the strategy of corrupting the youth whose minds aren't already made up. How much traction have his ideas gotten among uh, his contemporaries and uh, how, how, how on fire are his ideas now among uh, younger economists in the field? I think that... Uh there is uh, a lot of uh, excitement, but also there is a new phase. And says, uh, Dick was instrumental at poking holes in the existing paradigm. I think the young scholars now are trying to uh, produce a better paradigm that incorporates, uh, incorporates uh, his uh, uh, objections, but uh, try to model a, a richer set of behavior. And this is the natural progression of science. Uh, science is... Uh, establish a paradigm, and then uh, you uh, find uh, problems with the paradigm, and you develop a new paradigm that incorporates the old problem. I think that uh, we are now past the phase of celebration of Dick in the profession. We are in the phase of trying to develop a new paradigm. Luigi, we've talked a lot about his contributions to the the academic literature. How about to investing uh, generally? What has, uh, what has his influence been on the, uh, the art of investing? Uh, I think that uh, he has pointed out that uh, some uh, uh, strategies that uh, were dismissed by the standard academics actually seem to work, and then uh, other people are contributing trying to find out why uh, they they work. So I think that uh, part of the new paradigm of the three or four factor models that now is attributed to uh, to Gene Farmer and his co-authors. I think he was mm. born as a response of some of the anomalies that uh, uh, Dick and Carlos right. have found. Uh, Luigi, the laureate Douglas North of Washington University in St. Louis would talk of institutional economics, which is about culture and the fabric of societies. Does Richard Thaler play in America the same way he plays in a country like Italy? Uh, yes, I think that uh, to some extent... Uh, out around the world, people might be puzzled and say, what is the contribution of this guy? Because some of the things he says are so obvious to us. Why did he get a Nobel Prize for this? And sometimes sort of uh, uh, you get rewarded also for stating the obvious when other people don't understand the obvious. And, and sometimes mm -hmm. the best thing is the obvious. We are the Luigi Zingales of the Booth School of Chicago. Luigi, a big controversy and that we went back to Arthur Oaken's classic work of 40 years ago, where Lawrence Summers and Kevin Hassett both agree leaky buckets are a big deal in economics. But we see out in the Twitterscape this morning, both Paul Krugman and 
Lawrence Summers going after the chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, and all of this over the idea, can tax reform spur lower taxes, which spurs economic growth? What says Zingales about this debate? First of all, I think what is important is to have uh, permanent lower taxes. A, a temporary tax cut uh, favors uh, arbitrage, but not really <clears throat> investment and growth. Uh, second, the tax cut should be sustainable. Uh, I think that uh, if this uh, comes at the cost of much larger deficits, I think that's, uh, that's a problem. So I think that uh, corporate taxation in the United States is too high. But also, a lot of corporations pay very little taxes. So a, a corporate tax reform is long overdue. Uh, and uh, I'm not so sure that this plan is going to fix all the problems. But I think a, a reform is overdue. Yeah, I go back to a question that Tom asked uh, of Kevin Hassett. I think it was such an important one. That is, how do you incentivize companies, if they bring these profits back, if they're incentivized to bring profits back from overseas, uh, to invest that, to spend that on uh, hiring new facilities, uh, to invest that money back into the American economy. But one could say that uh, if it's profitable to invest, why they shouldn't? So if you make it profitable uh, by creating the right business condition or by creating the low tax environment, they should uh, invest more. Uh, what is certainly not going to work is what George W. Bush did at this time, that is basically gave a temporary uh, tax relief to bring the money back. The result is that uh, since then, companies have accumulated cash abroad waiting for the next tax, tax release. So having a temporary tax change creates more damage than good. Uh, I think what you want is a lower permanent stable tax rate. Within that is the distribution of those benefits. Is the distribution now because of technology, because of the skew between service and goods producing America, is the distribution or diffusion of tax benefit gains only going to the rich? First of all, we need to realize that uh, corporate uh, taxes are just one part of the tax you pay on those profits because uh, when those profits uh, accrue to individuals, they pay taxes a second time in the form of uh, a tax on dividends or tax on capital gains. So if we want to in, in, uh, uh, sort of influence the distribution, uh, what you can do is uh, reduce the corporate tax rate and increase the tax on dividends and, uh, and uh, capital gains. I think that's a way to lower uh, copper tax rate, but uh, make sure that uh, the gains are not disproportionately enjoyed by a small fraction of the population. How do you watch all of this unfold from, from Chicago? Of course, there's so much politics at play, despite what Kevin Hassett was saying. He's, he's calling for bipartisanship. He hopes that this is an opportunity for bipartisanship. How optimistic are you that we're going to see tax reform versus uh, tax cuts in light of what you've seen uh, in recent weeks from politicians and, and certainly from that nine-page document itself, from the outline, from the framework uh, that was released by that group called the Big Six? Uh, I'm sorry. I'm generally a pessimist by nature, ah. but I think the environment here does not uh, force me to change my normal attitude. I think expecting a, a major tax overall is very difficult because it does require 
a, a, a reaching out across the aisle. Let, let's uh, uh, remind ourselves that the last time there was a major tax overhaul was when Reagan uh, was president, and there was an effort to reach across the aisle. Ted Kennedy was part of that. Uh, so I think it's uh, not that easy to envision a situation like this now. Maybe shift gears here a little bit, uh, if I could, just to, we have, I think we had a conversation about Bitcoin in, in some time, and obviously the conversation has shifted over these last few weeks, beginning with what the uh, the head of J.P. Morgan had to say about uh, about the cryptocurrency, analogizing it to a uh, the Dutch uh, tulip crisis uh, as well. What do you make of the, the discourse surrounding Bitcoin at this point, the fluctuations that we've seen in the market, and, and how do you dovetail that with the future of uh, of finance when you hear the head of a big bank talking about it so negatively? So I think that uh, the technology that is behind Bitcoin is a very interesting and valuable technology. And I think that there is no doubt that in some way or another will become the technology of the future. Whether this will go necessarily through Bitcoins, I am very doubtful. And, and I think that uh, because there is a lot of speculation of what would be the next uh, sort of uh, uh, currency, I think that uh, the valuation are all over the place. Uh, but I think that... Uh, Yes, uh, it's, uh, the, the valuation today of Bitcoins are, are a bit crazy. Uh, but, you know, it's very hard to, to predict because uh, nobody knows what the final demand for this well, uh, thing is. So, uh, and how much of that demand is sort of a demand for illegal activities and how much is legitimate demand for trading. Right. Do you equate it to what Kindleberger wrote about years ago? Are we talking about being on the edge of tulips? I think there is definitely a tulip component in the super excitement. Uh, but let's remind ourselves that generally, and maybe tulip is an exception, but in general, the super excitement comes at the time of major transformation. Uh, there was a dot-com bubble, but at the same time, there was a major transformation of the economy brought by Internet. Uh, there was a railway bubble and electricity bubble, but it's not like railways and electricity have gone away. They really transform our economy. So uh, I think it's important not to be too excited about Bitcoin per se, but not to be too blind about uh, what is coming. Well, Luigi, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate your joining us today, and particularly your comments on the laureate Richard Thaler of uh, the Booth School, Chicago. This is what it's all about, folks. Uh, Richard Thaler to join us later in the hour. And now Olivier Blanchard of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, formerly with the International Monetary Fund, and now holding court at the Peterson Institute in Washington. Professor, wonderful to have you back on again. Uh, January of 2015, dark corners, reassessing macroeconomics after the crisis. And Professor Thaler introduced you to the American Economic Association. How do you bring your new Keynesian world, your seventh edition macroeconomics, the rigor of Olivier Blanchard? How do you bring Richard Thaler's world into your work? Oh, I, I bring it with great pleasure. Uh, I've always thought that, uh, you know, the assumptions we made about the rationality of individuals in our world was excessive that we assume too much rationality, too much foresight. 
and I've been waiting for the time when uh, what uh, Dick Thaler has started in this field of behavioral economics would become sufficiently strong and developed that we could actually formalize the behavior of people and firms, not as we think they should be, but as the way they are. And uh, I think that what he has done and what that field has achieved over the last uh, 10 years is incredible. I think we're ready to uh, introduce it in macro and understand a lot of things that are much more difficult to understand under the homo economicus uh, view of uh, people mm -hmm. that we had earlier. So this is great news. I'm, I'm, I think it's great news for him, but it's great news for macroeconomics. It's great news for economics in general. Well, let's play that out a little bit. If, if you do uh, introduce homo economicus, as you say, into macroeconomics, uh, what does that look like? Where do you see the, the possibility for some application of behavioral economics uh, in macroeconomics writ large? Uh, I think, you know, the main place uh, is probably in the behavior of consumers. From a macroeconomic point of view, consumption is, you know, uh, most, most of spending is, is consumption. And so we have to understand how consumers act. And under the usual traditional assumptions, consumers were formalized as incredibly smart people who could mm -hmm. make incredibly complex computations, look into the infinite future, and they make extremely rational yeah. decisions. Now, we knew, we knew that wasn't right, uh, but the question was how to go away from that. And uh, what Dick and others have done is say, well, you know, in practice, this is the kind of horizon that people have. These right. are the kinds of rules of thumb that they have. And I think we're at the point where if I'm to write down what we call a consumption function, you know, the behavior of consumers, I would do a much better job than I did uh, 10 years right. ago. In your wonderful book, 7th edition, folks, can't say enough about Blanchard Macroeconomics, Chapter 10 is the facts of growth. The debate this morning is Paul Krugman and Lawrence Summers going after Kevin Hassett of the Trump administration over the certitude that tax reform can generate economic growth. Now, that's not in your Chapter 10 per se, but are you optimistic that Trump tax reform can lift sustained gross domestic product? Absolutely not. Uh, you know, on these things, theory says it could, a bit unlikely, but the theory says it could. Then we look at the empirical evidence, and basically there is very little evidence that that kind of tax reform does a lot for growth. Productivity growth is low uh, for many reasons. Uh, I'm not sure that the tax reform is going to change things very much. So, yes, I think the assumptions of the administration are yeah. utterly optimistic. Uh, nothing is impossible. Maybe growth will pick up. This has happened in the past. It may pick up for various reasons, having nothing to do with tax reform. But the idea that mm -hmm. tax reform is going to unleash growth uh, has absolutely no basis in historical fact. Uh, David Gurl, there'll be a pop quiz <laughs> Friday, Thinking About Growth Primer, 229 to page 235. What do you, you make around of, of the rhetoric, uh, Dr. Blanchard, surrounding uh, just the, the scholarship into tax reform at this point? We were talking with Kevin Hassett. He exchanged some uh, pointed words with the Tax Policy Center. Obviously, a lot of politicians have taken that organization into account for uh, releasing an analysis so, so early on. I think of what we read about uh, a paper being taken down from the Treasury Department's uh, website. How worried are you about the, uh, the, the, the sanctity of nonpartisan, uh, academically-minded research in Washington today? First, I think it's always bad to get personal. Uh, I think that the argument against the tax reform is sufficiently strong that there is no reason to, uh, to go ad hominem. 
but uh, on your question, I completely agree. I think that the way uh, the Senate and the, uh, the House have treated the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, is unacceptable. Uh, I think it is essential to have neutral institutions which try to do the best job they can and not insult them and not dismiss their results when the results don't fit uh, what you would like them to say. I think this is a very, very serious issue. You will have a session with Professor Summers to continue the courage you've done over, I believe, four sessions from your days at the IMF on the state of macroeconomics. We just spoke with Vice Chairman Fisher uh, about the view forward. How have you changed your view, Professor Blanchard, since you initiated that study, that seminar at the IMF a number of years ago? So it has been very interesting, as you've said. I mean, there has been four conferences on that theme every two years since the beginning of the crisis. I think the first one was very much the fog of war. We were doing things, but we really didn't have much understanding of exactly what was going on and what the measures uh, were doing. So it was more trying to clear a bit of a fog. The second looked like we actually can, were converging to something. The third one was more skeptical. And this one, which will take place uh, this Thursday and this Friday, say, well, no, in fact, there are quite many issues which are not solved, uh, on which there is a lot of work, a lot of good work in the, uh, in the academic uh, sphere and, and, and some in policymaking. But we are a very long way from fully understanding this beast, uh, which is a financial crisis, what makes it come, how we can avoid it, how the financial system really works, how much we can use monetary policy, how we should use it, whether we should use fiscal policy more. These are all questions which, you know, 10 years after the beginning of the crisis are still very much on the table. Professor Blanchard, thank you so much. Olivia Blanchard of the Peterson Institute really beginning our coverage of the International Monetary Fund and World Bank uh, meetings. David, what do you see in the world economic outlook? Maurice Opsfeld of Berkeley, uh, his co-write with Ken Rogoff, a classic international economics test. He took Blanchard's place at the IMF. What does Maurice Opsfeld say to that? Yeah, he's pointing to, to growth in China still as a, an engine of, of growth globally, and I think that'll be something we'll be paying particular close attention to as we head to this People's Congress, which is convening in just a few weeks' time. A great conversation yesterday with Enda Curran visiting from yes. uh, Hong Kong, filling us in on the political import of that, but also the potential economic import of that as well, that once that's through, uh, we could get some new uh, economic policy mm. announced in China, and uh, we'll see where that takes us. I went into the European numbers, and it was it was interesting the number of com countries where year-to-year GDP is ebbing away even with the vaunted recovery of Europe. I'll have to read more about that. The value of those books, I really can't say enough about them, folks. You can get them full access on the web. They're great. And they pay, They do the hardcover. I think you have to pay for the hardcover uh, copy, the actual printed copy. But these are terrific sidebars for economic thinking into next year. This is Bloomberg. Good morning. Now joining us, the laureate Richard Thaler of Chicago. Professor, congratulations. Uh, I'm sure it's been an endless seam of interviews and love having you with us this morning. Long ago and far away, at Case Western University, you were not an engineer. You were an ADL, which was a pariah. You had to go over there because it was non-engineering undergraduates. When did economics get your interest? Was it at Case Western or did that wait for Rochester? Uh, no, I, I was an economics student after I realized that I wasn't smart enough to be a physicist. 
There's a lot so, of com- there's a lot of commonality there, which <laughs> has to do with the plague of math. Are, I, yeah. I, I talked to Steve Levitt about this years ago off Freakonomics. Are we over mathy now? And is your uh, uh, ascension here to laureate dumb? Is it about we need less math? Well, you know, the Nobel Prizes are uh, lagging indicators by 30 years or so. <laughs> so I, I don't know whether you want to take uh, this as evidence for anything, more evidence of what was happening in the 80s and 90s. But I, I think um, there was a period where economics was um, infatuated with math and uh, lost touch with reality. And uh, really what's going on in economics now, be it behavioral or otherwise, is a boom of empirical work uh, spurred by the uh, availability of big data. And so uh, I think for the most part, e- economics is in a pretty good place right now. Professor, we toasted your uh, your award yesterday with uh, Randy Krosner and with uh, Robert Schiller uh, as well. And something that he talked about in, in great detail was a more holistic view of economics, uh, getting economists to talk to folks in other departments across the university uh, campus. Are you seeing more of that at Chicago and elsewhere? Do, do you sense that there's a, a more inclusive form to economics today? Well, a little bit. Um, the, the truth is that the academy is less interdisciplinary than we would think or hope um, for various reasons. You know, I thought way back at the beginning when I was working with Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky that uh, behavioral economics would be a series of collaborations between psychologists like them and economists like me. And that really hasn't happened. It's more that economists learn a tiny little bit of psychology and then they go do economics a little bit differently. Uh, Most psychologists find us uh, endlessly boring. Uh, uh, They may have a point. And um, so... I think there is there is interest, like at, at Chicago, there's lots of interest in behavioral economics at the Harris School, which is the public policy mm-hmm. school, and at the law school. Um, but, you know, there may be one psychologist in the psychology department, too. Well, there is one. <laughs> there's at least one. Uh, there may be more than one. But, it, uh, you know, for the most part... Uh, many psychologists are now interested in neuro, and um, it, it's almost yeah. going in the other direction. Preceding you today, we, we spoke with Olivier Blanchard, and he talked about uh, his his willingness and, and eagerness to get more behavioral economics into macroeconomics uh, generally. And I asked him sort of how he envisions that playing out, where he sees likely practical applications of behavioral economics to macroeconomics broadly. Where do you see the field Going. In other words, it seems like you've, you've achieved greater acceptance of uh, the field of behavioral economics. What's the future look like to you? Well, I, I wrote at the end of my recent book, Misbehaving, that my hope was that the next big frontier for behavioral economics would be in macro. And uh, Olivia and I have a, at least a three- or four-year-old tradition of having dinner together at the annual meeting, and maybe I'm starting to corrupt him. <laughs> mm-hmm. Although I, I typically aim at younger people. Um, 
But I think uh, so. Here's a sample question that uh, um, Jason Furman and I have talked about uh, when. Uh, at the beginning of the Obama administration, when they passed a tax cut, the administration had decide had to decide whether to send people one big check or distribute it right. over the year. Mm-hmm. And uh, they wanted people to spend the money, and they did what I would have done. Nobody asked me, but um, they did it in dribs and drabs. So they just reduced your withholding tax, mm-hmm. and I think that's that was a it was the right call for the economy because they're aiming this at people who are living paycheck to paycheck, and they'll spend what they get. Right. If and if you give them a lump, they're more likely to save mm-hmm. it. If you're just joining us now worldwide, Richard Thaler joins us from the University of Chicago Booth School, uh, winner of the Nobel Prize this year in economics. I look, Professor, at the back and forth, and we must comment on the present state of our economic politics or political economics in Washington. Part of that has been a dose of certitude. I go back to the economist Mark Twain and the idea of the certitude of the second or the third or the fourth rate. It seems a little humility is in order. If you were to advise the president now on the proper behavioral path, what would it be? You mean this president? This president. Or, a, or, or this president. <laughs> this president. In a vacuum, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, um, you know, I would say uh, his ratio of certitude to uh, knowledge is uh, nearing record highs. Um yeah, we, we we all need a lot of humility, and um, especially about the economy. Um, you guys who get to make fools of yourselves daily. Touche. Uh, <laughs> Know this better than anyone. Um, you know, most of the time, the dumb things I say, nobody hears, except my wife, who reminds me. But, um, you know, I mean... Who would have thunk that the stock market would just continue to go up uh, with volatility? It looks barely alive. It's a snail mm-hmm. crawling up uh, with barely a slip uh, in what has to be the most uncertain uh, times of my life, uh, which is uh, a long time. And... Um, I don't know what it's based on, um, but surely it can't be based on the certitude that there will be a massive tax cut, uh, given the uh, seeming inability of uh, the Republican Congress to get their act together. So I don't know where where it's coming from. Mm. I want to ask you about uh, popular economics, and, and you've dabbled in this some. You were in a movie. You had a short live film career. You were in the, the big, yeah. the big short. What do you mean short live? It's on video. Have you, heard, video. From, have you heard from Miss Gomez? But, yeah, but I, Professor I, Thaler, have you heard from Miss Gomez giving you know, your ascension? I, uh, not yet. She's distracted. <laughs> it's it's surveillance for Selena Gomez second on the uh, on the call on the call list. Uh, but let me ask you just about your sense of how people regard economics today. Is economics doing a good enough job of explaining itself, explaining its importance to uh, to everyday Americans? 
Um, look, I think that there's more uh, accessible economics both in all forms than there have ever been from um, in in all the media. You know, shows like uh, shows like yours. Uh, there are um, uh, popular books, as you've mentioned. Um, behavioral economists have written some of them. Um, you know, the Freakonomics guys, yeah. both Steve's are buddies of mine. Mm. So, um, you know, there was nothing like that. When I wrote a book called The Winner's Curse back in 1992. Um, mm. But people didn't buy economics books then. Right. And uh, I think if I had written that book now, um, you know, well, uh, it, w- it would have sold a lot yeah. more copies. Uh, <laughs> Professor, very quickly here at 4.38 p.m. Chicago time, are you going to use your new clout to go see Nationals Cubs baseball? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, I'm not using any clout. I already had tickets. Oh, and, uh, and I told the PR department at Chicago Booth that, uh, go away, I'm going to the Cubbies. Very good. Richard Thaler, <laughs> thank you so much. You, Professor yeah. Thaler will continue this dialogue on Bloomberg Television here in a bit. We greatly appreciate his attendance. Day two of his uh, move to frequent flyer miles. <laughs> That's what laureates end up doing. <laughs> Flying a lot. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.